amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same. Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. My guest today is acclaimed director Michael Apted. Uh, such a vast body of work that when I was researching for you over the past week, but then again this morning, I thought, I don't even know where to start. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks very much for your time. Let's start at the beginning because one of the first things that I was aware of in your body of work was your work on the 7-Up series, which mm -hmm. you started back in 1964. Correct. How did that come about? Well, <clears throat> I had joined Granada Television in Manchester, which was the company that was going to produce the Up films eventually. And I went up there after I left university on a six-month training course. And they were very, very good company, very 
small but very, very smart and very effective. And uh, they didn't have enough money really to train us. There were six of us who were chosen to go up there. And so you had to do on-the-job training, sort of. And so pretty early on, <clears throat> I got involved in documentaries and news programs and stuff like that without ever really training for it. And one of the things I was asked to work on was this one-off film called Seven Up, which was a look at English society in the year 1964. Um, really, the whole idea was out of the mouths of babes would come the truth about our great nation. And our great nation was going, it seemed, through some kind of change of major importance. We had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and fashion and all this kind of stuff. And was the whole pivot of society changing? Was it as it seemed to be, to be born to rule? If you, you didn't have to have money, but as long as you were born into the right social class, you could get jobs. But now you had four young men from Liverpool earning millions of dollars, millions of pounds. Was English society changing? And so the idea was, rather than get a load of politicians or academics, or <clears throat> just general well-known voices to give their opinions, why don't you go to the root of the matter and find some seven-year-old children and talk to them about what they want to do, what their ambition is and all this sort of stuff, to see whether kids from different classes had different options and whether those from poorer backgrounds had no options at all and those from the wealthy could do what they want to do. <clears throat> it was a very simple idea. And it was only going to be one film. And one of my jobs was to choose half the children, which I did in about two weeks, because it was more an idea, a political idea, than a character idea. So a colleague of mine did the north of England, and I did the south of England. And we mustered together about 20 children. And we had a Canadian who was a freelance director who was hired to direct the film. And then we went out and shot these kids talking about everything, life, love, money, class, parents, work, girlfriends and all this, boyfriends, blah, blah. And out of this came this astonishing document because out of the mouths of these babes did come the truth that England was really a prehistoric social structure, that certain children from certain backgrounds could actually run off their life for you. Others couldn't. And it really was a real major event in British broadcasting because suddenly it made everybody wake up. All this wonderful stuff about <clears throat> the Beatles and all that and how nice that, that is, you could see that British society was really very socially constricted. And, rem and remained when you went through seven up, 14 up, oh, yes. and so on as you progressed. Do you still think it's the same? Oh, no, it isn't. And you, and you can see it change. Um, and also you could see the whole program change. Except, you know, when we saw how powerful 7-Up had been, and then the Canadian director, Paul Armand, had left, so they asked me to take over. And so I did, seven years later, 14-Up. Then you knew that we had a big idea here, that this was something worth following. And the series has gone through huge changes because originally the children were sort of political, you know, as it were, just political examples. You know, we chose people from poor backgrounds, very wealthy backgrounds and like that. 
then as the series went on, the, the personality of these people began to take over. And so it became not just a piece of political diatribe, but it became character studies in ordinary people. Not people who were chosen because they were tremendously bright or interesting at seven, but because of the backgrounds they came from. And so as the series matured and it changed all the time, it changed, keeps changing, it became more about this group of people. And what they said spoke more about English politics and English political background than any politician could give you, because this was the real thing, as we saw these people grow up and either fulfill their ambitions or to be deprived of the hope of ambitions. You could see these lives dramatizing. Now, it's fair to say this is really only about a generation of people who were born in the mid-50s. These were all born in 1955, I think, and things have changed, but nonetheless, it's a, through a peephole, it's a history of English social life over the last 50-odd years. Did you, at that time, what had you wanted to be? Well, I think that that's one of the interesting things. We didn't know what we wanted it to be. I mean, we... Oh, no, what you wanted to be. Had you well, wanted to be a director? Yes, absolutely. I'd had um, the road from Damascus, as it were, when I was 16 in a cinema in Oxford Street, which is, unfortunately, was destroyed years and years ago when I saw Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries. And that was a revelation for me because I'd, I'd been to movies, Saturday morning movies, you know all that sort of thing. Um, but the idea that film could be actually a creative form, an art form, as well as a book or a poem or music or whatever, it was that elevated, that moment elevated the whole notion of film into my soul, and that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know how I could ever do it, because I had no access into the business at all, and I was just lucky to get chosen to go on this course by Granada Television when I graduated from Cambridge. But from that moment, at the age of 16, when I saw that film, I knew what I wanted to do. But it seemed like a pipe dream. But mm. slowly, as the years went on, it became a reality. You just said that word, access. And I'm wondering, you were lucky enough to get the access at the beginning. But access is still an important word, even for someone like you, who has you're, you're well known for Gorillas in the Mist, uh, winning a Grammy for Sting's first solo album, uh, Fields of Gold, um, The Belushi Story, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, you know, you've, you've got a great body of work, but how much does that word access, how much luck do you need to get that access still? Well, uh, I think <clears throat> you need a lot of luck. You need you know, flashes of serendipity all the way through your life, things happening at the right time for you. That 7-Up thing happened at the right time for you. I came to America at the right time because I'd already done, what would it be, at least 15 years of work before I came to work in America. So I'd done documentaries, I'd done dramas, I'd done very distinguished dramas, um, you know, high-powered dramas on British television. So I was ready. I didn't come too early. I didn't come too late. Um, now it's a different story. Now we're looking at the other side of it. Now I'm getting so old. Is it difficult to get jobs? Yes, it is. It's getting harder to get jobs. And so I'm now going back into what I was, you know, 50 years ago, searching for access into good jobs at the right time. 
So it, it sort of never ends. The journey never ends. Do you think that, that age thing, you know, I mean, how can you be? Because you're fit, you're well. Yeah. Um, you still have all the skills and all the experience that it, that you had um, to do what you've done that has won so much acclaim. So I wonder, I wonder why age is, is such an issue. Well, I mean, it's a very gambly business, entertainment, you know. It's to do with risks, it's to do with taking shots. You know, with people who give the jobs, they want something new, they want something fresh, they want you know, Steven Spielberg, they want Quentin Tarantino and all this. They want to have the new voice. They want to take a chance. They want to gamble on something surprising. They don't necessarily want the old war horses going out to do what they know they can do. And sometimes you know you can do it so well it becomes boring, what you're doing, if you know what I mean. But, but I think, you know, in many ways, the entertainment industry really functions, I think, its main audience really is young people. And so you've got to have people making the work that knows that audience. You know, I, I think the movie industry is clearly driven, you know, by Marvel or whatever you, you know, the all tent the, the temple yeah. things. That they finance the industry. They, <clears throat> I came to America because I loved American movies in the 70s and I watched the decline of the American movie. I arrived just in time to do... Um, Coleman's daughter just to be at the end of the 70s. I always say to people, just look at the best picture nominations and through the 70s, and it's unbelievable how brilliant the, the films were and, that, and how well they've survived. Um, but, you know, I've seen the decline of it. I, I've seen the whole industry change from being run by filmmakers, not entirely successfully as it happens financially, but run by filmmakers. And, to then be run by bankers and agents and businessmen and all this sort of thing. And, you know, times change and they change very rapidly in the entertainment business because you've always got to be ahead of the curve. And being ahead of the curve, being very experienced or old is not necessarily a good recommendation for being at the head of a curve. And this is, you know, there are stories of Billy Wilder not being able to get a film, kind of weeping in the Fox commissary that no one would give him a job. And this is a man who I think probably won four Academy Awards as directing, did some of the most seminal films in the history of the industry. Mm. If it happens to Billy Wilder, why can I complain? Do you, when, you, when you look back, because I have done this, I am of an age, you, you, you look at an arc, um, a, a graph, your career on a graph, and there hits a pointy bit, and then it starts to go down. Yeah. We're not aware at the pointy bit, though, are we? And even no. as it starts to go down, we think there's going to be another bump, that it, it's... Yeah, but, but you, you know that what you want to do, what I want to do, is now much more specialised than what it would have been what I wanted to do 20, well, 30, 40 years ago. You know, the subjects I chose to do or found me were things that needed to be done. Now, you couldn't, most of the films I'm talking about could never be made now. You'd never make Coal Miner's Daughter now. You, would, you wouldn't make Gorillas in the Mist now. You know, it would be regarded as too expensive and blah, for the time and for this modern time. Well, they'd CGI the Gorillas <clears throat> in. Yeah, and then it wouldn't have that same, you know, you know energy to it. Mm. 
So, you know, as, as taste changes, you, changes, you know. I mean, I, I find I like less and less films as an audience. You know, I'm not tapped into a lot of what people want, the films that are very successful and all this, so they don't really interest me. I'm finding more interest watching television, in a sense. You know, things, the entertainment industry goes through its different waves, and, you know, it went from being the movie industry to be big movies, and then that's got so expensive, then it became independent movies, and the major studios bought the independent companies and wrecked them, and now it's gone into television. You know, the number of very gifted people who are working in television and the output you know, in cable drama and network drama is pretty astonishing. The, the most interesting stuff is on television. Well, you're working on two of the biggest shows yeah. at the moment, both Masters of Sex and Ray Donovan. Yeah. Um, that's obviously an area that, that well, you excel in it, you enjoy. Yes, and it's where I come from. I remember we, at the Directors Guild, we did um, <clears throat> 75th anniversary, a number of events, and I sort of was in charge of it, and one of them was with Coppola, who was wonderful. And he said this fascinating thing. He said, you know, I think as I get older, I go back to where I began. Because he started out making student films. His first movie, You're a Big Boy Now, was a student film. Now, over the last decade, he's been making these very low-budget, studenty films. And I feel in some ways the same, that my roots were in television. <clears throat> that's where I learned my business, and that's where some of the best stuff I ever did was in television. Now I find myself going back towards it. So, you know, maybe there is a there is a kind of pattern in one's life. You know, mm. I mean, having having drawn that arc in the air for you, I have to say, I don't necessarily regard that pointy bit as a pinnacle of joy. Uh, but as far as acclaim is concerned, and as far as having access to getting the kind of yeah. work that you feel at the time is important, I'm like you. I think the more there's more interest in being able to pursue a niche and being able to do what you really want to do. I mean, what I'm doing with you here today, Take Fountain, the podcast, compelling stories from passionate people, is an idea that I had on radio in Australia 10 years ago. And I was fired because it wasn't rating well enough, but my program director said that it was what she considered to be the best program on the station, certainly her favourite and she hoped that I wouldn't give up. But it's taken me the technology of podcasting right. to be able to come back to it, rather than going through that, pitching it to a radio station and saying, I've got this really good idea for a show, let's yeah. do this. And so the metrics are totally different. You, uh, you create something, then you also have to promote it. You become chief cook and bottle washer. You know, you are the marketing team. Right. The technology platform is, is ostensibly free. You hope to monetize it by getting some kind of advertising or someone who'll sponsor it. But it, it's, it's, it's an interesting time mm -hmm. to create something that you're devoted yeah. to. And this is an interesting time for this technology. Yeah. And in a sense, you know, this breeds itself in a way. You know, it attracts money and stuff like that. Hopefully for you and advertising and you know, everything you need, you're doing this at the right time. Yeah. And this is your time. I may not be doing the right things at the right time now. <laughs> but, you know, you have to, if you've had a life in the entertainment business, you know that's the game. It's, you know, it's not a steady path. It's, it's a surf ride in a sense, you know. And you hope you have more than one peak. Well, I think 
that's also a misnomer if I can draw on my experience for a moment you know when I arrived in in Hollywood three years ago of course the first thing I did was sign up for classes as a way to meet people and improve my craft as an actor and as a comedian so I did classes in both and also improv and so I'm really mixing with a lot of people in their mid to late 20s and they they have this notion that it's like being on the Big Dipper where once your your little carriage gets hooked onto and starts climbing the hill then it will just continue in an upward trajectory well, and the that Big doesn't, Dipper doesn't do that does he the Big Dipper goes down around the corner yeah if they're going to use that metaphor they better get it right because well, it's well, mm. yeah but it's a good metaphor because you do have ups and downs you do have periods when you're instinctively in tune with what's going on and and periods when you're not. Mm. Periods when you're in the right place at the right time and periods when you just keep missing out. So, the, you know, that is a very good metaphor for it, the mm. older thing. How do, you, how do you deal with rejection? Well, not very well. Um, no, I get very pissed off when I go up for jobs. And <clears throat> the jobs, I mean, you, you also get a sense that you're never going to get this job particular one or maybe all that you don't even want this job that you go up for but when you go for a meeting and it seems to go well and then you never hear from people or they you hear two months later no we what's their phrase we're going in a different direction yeah I get annoyed by that because mm. um, I do think I have something to bring I mean I can still do the job I, I can't do Marvel but I can do the job and some of the and I usually only go up for jobs that I think I can do. I don't particularly go in for jobs that would be a huge stretch for me. And the competition would be with 25-year-old directors, you know. So, no, I get really pissed off. Mm. And, and a bit despairing, you know, is it over? Um, you know, is it time to quit? You know, I've been doing it for over 50 years now. 53 years before, since I started, so that's a good run. But could you quit? I mean, what would... What would the, the, we define ourselves by our work, or yeah. uh, many of us do? I know I do, and I had this conversation with somebody on the weekend who's been unwell, and she said since her illness, her life has got quantifiably smaller. Less people are interested in in maybe uh, speaking to her. The opportunities aren't right. as great. Um, so when we've defined ourselves by our work for such a long time. Do you ask yourself, who am I outside of that? Yeah, yeah. I think you have to be self-analytical because, I mean, there will be a time, you know, when <clears throat> I should stop working. I don't feel it yet. Mm. So I think you've got to have all your marbles in play, if I'm not mixing metaphors here. Well, um, you still have all your marbles. That's what I, all my marbles. <laughs> I like that. You know, and you, you, as you get older, you get, you know, I think, more aware of your limitations in a sense when you're younger you're much more brash and bold and all that which is great but it's hard to keep that brashness and sort of sink that into your experience and wisdom you know the wisdom and experience you've acquired over these decades you know you know when you're younger you can just rush into things and do things and take a chance um, now you're you have too much wisdom in effect and so sometimes you know maybe I narrow myself down mm. But, uh, you know, I, uh... I... I like that analogy of, you know, when you're, when you're a little person and, uh, and you go outside and you climb a tree and 
you fall out of it and you break your arm. And your mother says, see, you know, I told you, you're not supposed to climb the tree. But six weeks later, you're out there leaping yeah. off a fence or, yeah. you know, swimming out yeah. of your depth or doing all of those things. I think as we age, because we get, we get hurt so many times, and by hurt, I, I don't mean breaking bones all the time or, or hurt emotionally, yeah. but we just, we realise what the limitations are, so we maybe don't go there as much. Yeah, and that, that, that's really what I'm saying to you, that you, you some, <coughs> someone, somewhat edit yourself, maybe wrongly, but sometimes you feel, well, I can't, I don't think I should be doing this, I don't think I could cope with this, I don't think I could deal with it. I mean, that doesn't happen much to me. I'm still fairly ballsy about what I'll go out and do, as my friend here knows. We go and do some very strange things. But, uh, and I'm always on the lookout, you know, for stuff that I think is fresh and original, and I think I can identify what is fresh and original out there, as it were. Do you, I mean, you're the president of the Directors Guild of America. I was, yes. You were, you I'm were. Okay. the secretary treasurer now, so okay. I have all the money. <laughs> nice. Very good. Do you mentor young people coming up? Is Not it possible really. to do that? Well, it is. It, I should, but I'm... You know, the work I do at the Guild is more about running the Guild. It's not sort of using the Guild as an outreach, which it, it does do. But I, I haven't done that much of it, which is pretty bad. You know, it's something I sort of regret. I've done some of it, and I quite enjoy it. I don't thoroughly enjoy it, because I've been always... I've done done such a lot of work over the years that to have done that much work you have to always clearly have been have one eye what's out there you know the thought I've been often been asked to go and teach for for an academic year or and I think I can't take myself out of the market for a year I mean universities have made quite an effort to get hold of me to do it and I'll do odd things but I've never wanted to commit even to a term of going to teach at UCLA, although I know, or USC, I know I should do it, but I never have done because I've always been trying to keep my own work going. And as I get older and the office become less and less, it makes me even more aware that I don't want to really tie myself up in a big teaching capacity, if you know what I mean, which is probably stupid. And I would have had an enjoyable time doing it because um, I quite like talking to students and things like that. But I think it's because I've been so anxious to keep the ball rolling that I've been very aware that I've got to put as much time aside as I can to follow any leads that come up mm. to increase my career. It's a somewhat selfish admission, but there you have it. I had thought when I started this podcast that my audience would be up-and-coming people who were looking for information and encouragement and, and more about their world that they were moving into and what I've been interested in is the number of people who are at let's say a mid-range level up to your level who are interested to hear stories that resonate for them that that also speak their yeah. their truth if you like um, so I, I totally understand that notion of you want to mentor you want you would like to teach, but making yourself available for the opportunities as they come around. Because the powers that be, if they hear that you are off doing something like yeah. that, they don't understand the notion that it might only be for a set term. They then think you're always doing that. Yeah. Indeed. Mm. So in your career, 
film, feature film, documentary, television. Have you ever shot commercials? A little bit, yeah. Okay. Some in England, some here. But again, I've never... I came to it here too late, I think, you know. Because in, in, in the United Kingdom, there were kind of two schools of us, of people of my generation, were the schools that came out of television and the schools who came out of commercial. Um, you know, the Ridley Scott, Alan Parker, Hugh Hudson came out of commercials, and Stephen Frears and Mike Muir and me and whatever came out of television. And I don't think any of us who came out of television have ever really nailed the, you know, the, the commercials market. Um, the commercials people, because, because television is very time-consuming and, and not well-paid, whereas commercials is the reverse, it's not very time-consuming and extremely well-paid, um, I've never really been able to kind of latch into a, into a into a partnership with a commercial person or whatever, which has been very disappointing to me. And, it's, and I think also it's, a lot of it's my own fault. But I didn't really ever figure out how to talk that language or how to deal with it. Whereas it would have been an ideal way to, I think, to sustain your career for a longer period because you've got these moments when you can make a lot of money quite quickly and use that money to finance, you know, looking for material. Mm. When you've never made a lot of money because television doesn't pay that much money, and when my first, you know, 20 years was in television, you don't kind of build that financial support system that uh, you do if you come from commercials. Mm. But the general public think that everybody in this industry earns so much money, Michael. Well, <laughs> you know, we do, in comparison with a lot of people, but... Not, you know, not people in the financial industry make multiple t amounts of money as we do. For, mm. you know, so, we're, I mean, we're a very well-paid industry. So uh, what's, it, what's it like for you working on something like Masters of Sex? Uh, how involved are you in the process? Well, not as much as I'd like to be. Um, you know, doing movies or doing television films as opposed to series... You know, you're in it from the beginning and through to the end, but here you you come in. I mean, with Masters of Sex, for example, I think it was in season two that I did the first three episodes, and I was a producer on the season. I, I did another episode. I did four out of the 12, I suppose, which is quite a lot, and so I was more involved in that. But in these other seasons of Masters and in Ray Donovan, I've only done, at the most, two or one in a season. And it's very frustrating because you're not part of the development process. You're given a script. The script changes radically during your seven days of prep when people start, because you're there, whoever you are, but as the director is there, they begin to focus on what has got to be done. And then what's very painful about whatever series you work in is the post-production, which is ludicrous. You get four days to cut it and deliver it and then you very rarely ever see it again. And it goes through lots of different hands as producers of the, sh of the series, the network, the producing company, and lots of finger uh, fingerprints are on it, and that's very frustrating. Mm. So you don't have anything like the control you have on a movie doing television, unless you're just doing one-off things. And I find that very distressing, because I had more control doing television work when I was 28 than I have now. When I did a film for Granada Television, 
you know, and I did a lot of stuff with very fine writers and all that. You know, I saw it through. Mm. Uh, I worked on the script. I I cut the movie and all that kind of stuff. Now I don't do any of that. You know, you do get the feeling working in television, even though the material is very good. The scripts are usually good, and you know they get very high class performers in them. You don't really control it, and that's you know one of the issues of the Directors Guild in a sense. To what little control the director has is to try and preserve it, because you're up against big money making machines, and the director is a mere cog in that machine. You know there are other f- f- much more important people in it than the director. The writing is so crucial to television because there's so much of it. So the people who run the writing, the people in the writer's room, you know, they're much more powerful than they are than being a director. So the director's power in television is is all, always shrinking and it's sort of inevitable. But, you know, the Directors Guild has a kind of, you know, we have to take a position on things, on late scripts, on cutting time, on preparation time. And usually it's... It's a struggle, you know, to keep the status quo, let alone improve it. Um, but that's one of the things that, you know, is most engages us at the Directors Guild, other than, you know, our overall rights as a union and our overall pay scale as a union and all that, to just keep that sustained. But, you know, we have our creative rights are very, you know, very important to us, and you feel them slipping away. Would you ever go back to working in the UK or, or indeed living there? Well, after Brexit, not really. Mm. No, I, I, I don't. I mean, my heart is there. I don't have that much family left there and I'm happier here. I came here because there was so much energy here. I mean, the first four films I did in the United Kingdom in the 70s were all paid for out of America. And, you know, I thought, what am I doing in England? You know, the decisions are made. I get the jobs from an American company. And what am I doing here? And I liked America and I loved American movies. I grew up on European movies, but I got tired of them because they seemed to be just preaching to themselves, you know, making films for themselves. But the great thing about American movies was not only they were very, very good, but they spoke to a lot of people. You know, people were crowds around the block to see the movies of Coppola and Spielberg and Hal Ashby and blah, blah, or anybody you want to name. And I love that. I, I love the fact that good work was being communicated. That's why I came here. And, you know, it, it, it's done me well. And there's so much energy here and so much work going on here. You know, in England, in the United Kingdom, that's never really been the case. You know, you've always had to struggle to get movies going. Mm. You know, because the crude truth is the British actually don't need a film industry because we share the language with the Americans, so the Americans can become the British film industry in the crassest way. Whereas if you're Spanish or Italian or French, you need a local industry because you need films made in your own language. So. Look, I, I know a friend of mine in Australia keeps... She's on a bit of a film fest this week, and there's a lovely little cinema called the Hayden Orpheum up in my old... Um, suburb called Cremorne and it's an art deco cinema there are three or four cinemas it's hardly a multiplex and they show a lot of in inverted commas art house cinemas but they're showing something at the moment called God Willing and she says it's absolutely wonderful you must see it but I looked it up and of course it was never released here released everywhere else in the world but never in America so I'm hoping that 
access to these new apps and cable channels yeah. is going to allow me to see something like yeah. that. Well, one of the, the things, you raised Brexit there. Because you've been such a documenter of social history in your career, not only for 7UP, but also the way you approach things like Coal Miner's Daughter and, and Gorillas in the Mist, you know, um, where are the great thinkers of the 21st century, do you believe? What, in the film? No, in life itself. Who's going to lead us forward? Well, it's, it's, it's an alarming question, isn't it? Yeah. Because you, looked at, you look at the disarray in the United Kingdom and you look at the disarray in America about everything and you worry whether we're going into a, a generation of chaos, whether you know, people, however liberal we want to be, there's huge gulfs in society. Society doesn't talk to each other. The economics of societies in the Western world, well, not so much in Europe, but in America and the United Kingdom are out of all proportion to what they should be. You mean that the the one percent only yeah the one percent thing. I mean it's it's horrifying, you know, and, and that has deteriorated, you know, in my lifetime drastically. And I mean, again, I was always attracted to trade unionism for the you know for the very reason that the working man's rights should be represented and preserved. I, I joined the Directors Guild in the UK, you know, very early on. But that was, you know, destroyed by Margaret Thatcher with everything else. But I've always had this feeling that the workers' rights, whether they're coal miners or film directors, whatever, are always um, under pressure mm. by the prevailing economic climate that seems to be getting more and more prevailing you know, as those that have preserve what they have at the expense of everybody else. Do you look at, does your mind work in such a way that you look at what's, what's happening socially, culturally, economically in both the UK and America and think, I'd love to get my teeth into that, I'd love to yeah. do something on that? Well, that's, you know, that's, that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, for me, when I was working, People were writing stuff about this, you know, in in England in the 60s and 70s and in the United States in the 80s and the 90s, people were making films like that. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very hard now to make mainstream films about social issues. You know, people won't go and see them or people don't want to go and see them or they won't get made. I mean, I don't see movies except, you know, very avant-garde student movies or movies made for very little money, I, that they really touch the nerve of what's going on in this, uh, on, in the Western world. I don't see that so much. I so just, does that strengthen the, the documentary platform then? Yes, well, I, I think that's true. I mean, and I wonder why documentaries are so popular now. You know, and I have this theory that they're providing a need for people because Television news is ludicrous. I mean, Fox destroyed that, and news is just entertainment now, and controversy and all that sort of stuff. Newspapers are a joke. They've, they've lost any sense of, with a few bright exceptions. People get their information, people who want to know about stuff, probably more from documentary films than for anything else. Mm. You know, but they're not that accessible. But. I think they do fill a gap. Why they're so popular, I think people are deprived 
of intelligent discussion about the times they live in, you know, and the background to the news they're sort of aware of. And you look at it, because I'm, you know, on the documentary branch in the Academy, and, you know, we have kind of tough rules for what can qualify, but even with those tough rules, we'll have to watch about 150 films mm. to see which films we would put on a short list, you know, for, to, to, for nomination. So there's a lot, and with the change, as in your game, the change in technology is so much easier. When I started, all the way up to 42 up, I was shooting them on film with big lights and all this sort of stuff, which made it difficult to do the job because it wasn't intimate. But now, I mean, you know, you could go out and make a documentary, mm. you know. And Shoot it on an iPhone using yeah, a road mic. Yeah. And yes, I know, I know. So all that is, is playing into this. It's a question, you know, that I, I think it does fulfil a need. One of, one of my chief concerns, having a background as a journalist initially, is the issue of truth. Yeah. And that there is a lot of information that's shared, particularly on social media or quoted, but no one is checking the sources. No one is verifying mm. where does this come from. And I had an issue with this uh, back in radio 20 years ago, asking my producers, but, you know, this is just a media release that you're giving me and somebody who's quoted in the media release. But what is, do we believe their side of it or right. should we look elsewhere, you know? And I was considered to be a bit of a bitch for doing that. I saw something yesterday that buys right into this and it was a very liberal left-wing friend of mine who posted a graphic of a picture that was purportedly from Twitter of Donald Trump congratulating Serena Williams on her Wimbledon win and saying that they were close friends and um, that she was a black woman and they were close friends. And then a reply purported to be from Serena Williams, no, no, I will never be your friend, no, do not repeat this. On the face of it, you think that's typical Trump and good on Serena, share. But I went to their Twitter accounts and I desperately tried to find both of those statements and they weren't there. It simply was a graphic created really? by somebody and yet this is being shared around by people who believe now, it's in the vein of what he might say and in the vein of what she might say, but yeah. the reality is it's it not exist, true. Yeah. It's not right. <clears throat> well, the information is so politicised now. I mean, you know, in, in, in newspapers and on television, I mean, these Fox News or whatever, you know, they take a very strong political position on everything. Mm. So everything is filtered through that position. There's no, there's no really such thing... I suppose you, you could say NPR is probably the nearest you get to it, you know, where the information is at least reasonably unfiltered. You're not just hearing a politicised argument, which is why I think people don't trust television news and why television news is just part of entertainment. Well, I, and that notion of people don't trust television news, sadly, many people do and then continue on in ignorance. Yeah, get let down. Yeah. So, well, I don't know. I don't know what the future is. <laughs> but I, um, if you ever want to work on a documentary about truth in journalism, um, I'd love to research it with you. Right. <laughs> Michael Apted, what's in your future? What's coming up next? Um, well, I'm just finishing off a movie, that I, a thriller that I set in London that I shot in in Europe. I'm just finishing that in Munich next week. Just putting the final touches to. The, the dub, it's called Unlocked, 
It's got a very good cast in it. Um, I did a Ray Donovan, Donovan, which went out last night, and now I've got, I'm about to start two Masters of Sex. And that's it for the moment. I've got a number of projects in development with a big D, but God knows how many of those will see the light of day, you know, and you know, it's just so frustrating because, again, this is where you need good luck to, you know, hit a project at the right time. You know, that's getting harder and harder to do. Do you think that we get better at dealing with frustration and rejection? Well, I think you have to, yes, otherwise you go balmy, otherwise you kill yourself. Yes, I mean, I've always been pretty volatile when cheated out of things that I think I should be doing, but I think I've, I curse a bit when I don't get a job, but... Um, because, you know, I used to get the jobs. Most of them I went up for, you know. It wasn't really too much of an issue because there was plenty of those sort of films being made. One wasn't competing for, like, the five intelligent films that are going to be made between now and the end of the year. You know, so... Um, but I have got more used to it. I've had to. Otherwise, you know, you, you would go bonkers. Well, I hope you don't go bonkers. Yes. And I hope you don't retire for a long time. Okay. <laughs> and thanks, thanks for your time. It's been really lovely talking good. to you. It's good. You're very good at this. Thank <clears> you. <throat> I was told you were, so that was good. <laughs> thanks, Michael. All right. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Tape Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favourite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.